We really did have a great time at church camp. There's nothing more exciting than intercepting a pass intended for Chase Johnson and running it back untouched for a touchdown. No, but we really did have a spiritually enriching time. Several of our own obeyed the gospel at camp or shortly thereafter. Uh, Lila and Sydney and Maddie, and we rejoice with them and their families. Let's never take any conversions for granted. We might be tempted to think, well, that should happen. They were raised in the church, but it's a mark of several important things. Individuals like Derek Johnson directing camp and Travis and pointing them towards spiritual things. Their parents, their upbringing. And of course, their tender hearts that were sensitive to the gospel message. And we rejoice and thank God with them and on their behalf. Father's Day did not come about in the same way that Mother's Day did, at least not with the same sentimental sort of love and acceptance. Many people said probably because fathers don't have that same sentimental impact. I don't know if that's true, but it was a long process. It started in about 1908. First observance of Father's Day in this country was at a church in West Virginia because 362 minors were killed in an explosion at a factory the year before. And then there was progress made in 1910. Sonora Dodd went around to YMCA's and churches and shops to say we need to honor fathers and she was successful. In 1910, the first statewide Father's Day observance was observed in Washington State and then President Coolidge in 1924 encouraged state governments to start recognizing fathers and then finally, in a heated attempt at re-election with Nixon, he signed into law the federal holiday that we know today as Father's Day. I don't know what kind of father you had. Maybe your father was everything that he could have and should have been. Faithful, an example, involved, poised. But maybe he was hard to please. Disappointing. A failure. Maybe absent altogether. Regardless of our interaction with our fathers, the reality is it's right to acknowledge and praise men who serve and are doing their best to serve in the role as a father. I know that's right because the Bible commands it in places like Exodus 20 and verse 12, Ephesians 6 and verse 4. But more than that, one of the ways that God relates to us in Scripture is as God, our father in heaven, Matthew 6 and verse 9. And so it's not an overstatement to say that how we view God as a father will have a lot to say about how we live the Christian life and how we work alongside others that are doing the same. Philip's cry in John 14, verse 8 and verse 9, show us the Father and it'll be enough for us, is really the cry of humanity down through the centuries and to this present time. If we glimpse God rightly as our Father and have the right view of him, it changes everything about us and especially everything about how we engage with one another. If you have your copy of God's word, turn it to Luke chapter 15. Jesus didn't just come to teach us the way he did that. He also came to... Seek and save the lost, Luke 19 and verse 10, but he also came to show us the Father, and that's exactly what he did. One of the problems Jesus faced, though, is when he came to the earth, people already had their minds made up about the kind of father that God was. And so Jesus was often correcting and straightening out people's view of God, and they really couldn't stand it. In Luke 15, the reading Chuck read for us a moment ago, all the sinners and tax collectors were eating with Jesus and drew near to hear him. And you remember the response of the scribes and Pharisees in verse 2. They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. In response to those words, Jesus tells three parables, which is really one parable. He starts out by speaking in verses four, really down through verse 10, about a man who lost one of his sheep of the ninety nine. And then he talks about a woman who lost one of her coins. That's verse eight down through verse 10 and how she retrieved it and put it back together with the 10. And then finally, Luke 15, 11 through 32, the lost son. Every time the odds are greater. First is one out of 100. 
And then it's one out of ten. And finally, one out of two. Every time the thing which is lost becomes more valuable. First, a dumb animal, then a piece of money, but then finally a human life. Of course, the point of Jesus's parable is this. If you rejoice at the return of a lost sheep and a lost coin, it's right to rejoice at the return of a lost son. So he told him this parable. A certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he divided to them all his living. Not many days after this, the younger son gathered all and took his journey into a far country where he devoured his inheritance with reckless living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land and he began to be in want. And he went and hired himself to a citizen of the country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And when he had longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs did eat, no man gave him anything. Verse 17 says he came to himself. And he said, how many of my father's hired workers have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. This is what I'll do. I'll rise and go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned before heaven and in your sight. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. He arose and went to his father. But while he was a great way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, fell on his neck and kissed him. He said, Father, I've sinned before heaven in your sight. And I'm no more worthy to be called your son. His father said to his servants, quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him. A ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and kill the fatted calf. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. But his elder son was in the field, and he drew near to the house when he heard the music and the dancing. And he called to one of the servants to see what these things meant. And his servant said, your younger brother is coming. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he said, look, these many years I've served you. At no time have I transgressed your commandment, yet you never gave me a little goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours has come, who's devoured your your living with harlots and prostitutes, you've killed the fatted calf for him. The father said, son, you're always with me. Everything that I have is yours. It was right for us to celebrate and be happy. For this, your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In Luke 15, 11 through 32, Jesus doesn't just tell us a parable. He does that, but he also gives us five views of the Father's house. And everybody in the world has one of these five views, how we view the Father's house, God our Father. And it makes a difference with how we're going to serve him and how we're going to interact with other people. Let's begin with the five. Number one, some people view the Father's house as a house of entitlement. The younger son, if you look at Luke 15, verse 11 and verse 12, he goes to his father and he says, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now, in the ancient world, it was right. The father would, upon his death, divide his inheritance up with his children. When Abraham died, Genesis 25 and verse 5 says he gave all that he had to Isaac. Numbers 36, 7 through 9 details how the inheritance was to be doled out. But to ask for your father's inheritance while he's still living was the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. Or better yet, let's just pretend that you're dead so that I can get what's coming to me. Solomon says in Proverbs 30 and verse 11, there is a generation that curses their fathers and doesn't obey their mothers. This younger son in this parable represents just that. Give me what's coming to me. Give me what's mine because I've gotten all that I need out of you. Some people view the father's house as a house of entitlement. That is, they just want what they're getting. They want what's coming to them. The father gives them his portion of the goods. And he says, give me what's coming to me now. I don't want to wait. I want my inheritance pronto. Some people's entire relationship with God revolves around two words. Give me. 
And when they don't get, they pitch a fit. They want what's coming to them. They don't want anything to do with God. They don't want a relationship with him. They only want what God's going to give them. Israel, you remember them in the wilderness, Numbers 14, 1 through 4, and they wanted God to bless them. And when they felt like they weren't getting blessed enough, they would say things like, God, let us raise up a captain to take us back to Egypt because you're not doing the things that we want you to do. And this is how some people view God. We wish we could say this is only true about the parable. But history and human experience teaches us that some people view God this very way. Be careful not to make your relationship with God revolve only around the things that God's going to do and that God's going to give you. You remember what James says in James four and verse three, you ask and you don't receive because you only ask amiss to consume it upon your lust. Some people in the world find God useful, but Christians should find God beautiful. It's not just what God can give us and what God can do for us. It's about who God is. But notice the younger son doesn't want a relationship with his father. He just wants his father's things, his father's stuff, his father's gifts. And we've got to guard against that. We've got to guard against this spirit of entitlement that says God owes me because it reverses things. The spirit of entitlement says God exists to serve me. But Christianity says the opposite. Actually, we exist. Our sole purpose for existing is to serve God. Samuel stood at the end of his life in 1 Samuel 12 and verse 24, and he said to Israel, you remember, serve God faithfully all the days of your life and remember the great things he's done for you. We should be serving God. God doesn't exist to serve us. But this spirit of entitlement says that he does. It shows up when a person says, "Okay, I'll serve God because I don't want to go to hell. Listen, if we serve God, we do go to heaven. But God is more than the gateway out of the eternally hot place. The Bible says God is the gateway to everything that's good and that's glorious. We shouldn't approach him in a cavalier manner. Well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Just give me what's mine. Some people's approach to God is simply, you know, we haven't talked in a while. We really don't talk much, but I'm in a bind right now and I really could use your services. I really got no use for you outside of this. But would you help me to pull through? That's Israel in the period of the judges. They would sin. God would cause a foreign nation to oppress them. They would cry out to God. God raised up a deliverer when they were rescued. The cycle continued. Judges 2, 11 through 19. They only wanted God for what he could do. Some people approach God merely because, God, you're going to bless me. Give me what's coming to me. Give me what you have. The young man in Luke 15 wants nothing to do with his father. He believes his father's sole purpose for existing is to provide him with the things for which he needs. And once he's gotten those things, he no longer needs his father. And sometimes there are people that view God the same way. Elvis Presley had one daughter. Her name was Lisa Marie. She died about six months ago, January 2023, because of some issues with cardiac arrest. But that hasn't stopped people down through the centuries from saying that Elvis is their dad. It started with a woman named Desiree Presley in 1987. She even wrote a book, Elvis is my dad. She was found to be false. There was a man actually named Elvis A. Presley Jr. And he said he had documents and sworn testimony. None of his claims were ever substantiated. And then there was Deborah Presley. She actually made it to court when she presented her testimony. The judge said, listen, based on your testimony, not only are you not Elvis's daughter, but if you were based on this story you've concocted, you'd be privy to none of his inheritance because you'd be an unlawful and illegitimate daughter. And then there was John Smith in 2013. He said he had DNA and even produced a signed birth certificate. And the authority said, listen, John, anybody can sign a birth certificate and sign it. Elvis A. Presley, he's not your dad. You get none of his inheritance. The reality is none of those people had any care or concern for Presley. They wanted his inheritance, his fortune, his stuff. They didn't want him. And the spirit of entitlement comes to God and says, "Okay, you're God. You're my father. So long as you're giving me the stuff that I want, give me the portion of goods that's coming to me. 
They asked Jesus in John 6 and verse 25, where have you been? He says, you sought me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that is perishing, but for the food that endures to everlasting life. Every human being, especially the faithful Christian, should search his or her heart and say, do I really love God or do I just love the good things that God does for me? Do I love God because my life just so happens I didn't choose it. It just so happens to be going good. Or do I love God simply because he's good? Those are not the same thing. One of those is an attempt to hustle the divine. Another one is a response that heaven honors. The younger son has a view of God's house where he just he has his expectations high and his hands out. God, what are you going to give me? Cough it up. Give it over. But number two, there's a view of the father's house which views it as a house to escape. The younger son gathered his inheritance. He gathered all of it and took his journey into what's called a far country. He gathered what God had for him and he was out the door. He viewed it as a house to escape. The text says he took his journey into a far country and there he wasted his inheritance with reckless living. He viewed the father's house as a house he needed to get far away from as soon as he could. Maybe he heard about the far country before. It's a place of freedom and fun, but most of all, no demanding father. He wanted to go there, and so he did. He spent everything he had, and what the text says was reckless living. Reckless living always leaves us a wreck. Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 13, Solomon says, The day is coming when the wicked won't see good. Their days will not endure like the shadow because they don't fear God. Your sins have kept good from you, Jeremiah 5 and verse 25. He goes off into the far country, and the text said he spent it all. Maybe he didn't intend to originally. Maybe he thought he'd just spend some and sort of lull it out and sort of sparse it out throughout his days. But, you know, one of the devil's greatest wiles is that you can sin a little while and you can quit when you're done. But we normally don't stop until we're ruined. Listen to James. When lust conceives, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it's finished, gives birth to death. James 1 and verse 15. This younger son says, I want out of this house. I don't want your rules. I don't want your restrictions. I don't want your laws. I want to be free, just like Jonah, who would rather pay money to get on a boat to flee to Tarshish, Jonah 1 and verse 3, than stay and obey and do what God would have him to do. And I'm telling you, there are many versions of this today. Those that view the father's house as a house of escape, it's the teenager that says, you know what, I'm coming to church and I'm only coming because I'm young and my parents make me come. But I'm telling you, the day I get to make my own decisions, anybody with eyes can see it. They're sitting on the edge of their seat, one foot out the door. And as soon as I get my own spiritual independence, I'm out of here. You're never going to see me again. But It's not just that. It's the person who comes to worship and they do their one hour of religiosity and they say, you know, can we just hurry up with things? Do we really even have to stay for the announcements? I've done everything I came to do. I punched my ticket. Now I'm punching out. I can't wait to get out of here. I've done my duty. I've given God his hour. Now I need to go on and get on with my real life. But it's different. It's not just young people. There's this new phenomenon among people that have been Christians a long time. They've come to worship their whole lives while their spouse was alive, their mom and dad were alive. And now that that's over, they've got enough spiritual ammunition in their tank and they're out of here. They've done all that they're going to do for the Lord. And now they can just sort of rest on their laurels. They were faithful for a time and now no more. It's Joash in 2 Chronicles 24 and verse 2. The Bible says he was faithful to God all the days that Jehoiada was the priest. As soon as the spiritual influence that was in his life left, so did his faithfulness to God. And many people view the father's house as a house of escape. They don't look for a way of entrance to serve God, but as an exit to depart from God. Maybe you've seen this old meme before. It's been called 
the guardrail. It's an old cartoon where this man says, I hate being confined by, it, by this fence. I'm jumping over it. And somebody says, fence, it's a guardrail. You know, that's how some people view God's laws. They say, I don't want you telling me what to do. I don't want you sort of hemming me in. God, let me fly. Let me be free. And we jump to our own deaths. The young man would rather go to the far country and get a degree from the school of hard knocks than to live with his father and be faithful under this place of care and concern. When he comes back, just ask him some questions. Did it go like you thought it would go? Moses says the pleasures of sin last for a season. Hebrews 11 and verse 25. How was it out in the far country? Did things go as successfully as you thought they would? And what about all your friends? Surely there were some friends that helped you spend this inheritance. Where are they at with all their postmodern wisdom? How did those things go for you? Evil companions corrupt good morals. You squandered not only your living, but this great spiritual heritage that was yours. How was it feeding the pigs? Luke tells us in verse 15 and verse 16, it got so bad for him that he was not only hired to go work in a man's field, but he wanted to eat what the pigs were eating and no man gave him anything. This would have been detestable for a Jewish boy based on Leviticus 11 and verse 7, Deuteronomy 14 and verse 8. Any association with pigs was a no no. And here he is working among them and he would shout to every prodigal who's ever existed. Don't go to the far country. Their brochures are fantasy land. Their advertisements are false. But he knows that most prodigals won't listen, at least not while they have bulging pockets and their father's inheritance among them. They're going to run to the far country. And his message to them is simply the same message that he later received. See you at the pig pen. Some people view the father's house as a house to escape, not as a house of safety and refuge and love, but one that they can't wait to get away from. Remember, Jesus said in John 10 and verse 10, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it in abundance. He's come so that our joy might be full. First John 1 and verse 4. Nobody lives a full and joyful life while they defy the one who made life to begin with. When we don't live life by God's rules, we don't become freer and more vibrant and more ourselves. We become the very opposite of all that he made us to be. We enjoy life in the world that God has made best when we submit to him and serve him. The younger son says, I can't wait to get out of your house. And he was wrong. Now, here's number three. Some people view the father's house as a house to return to. If you mark in your Bible, Luke 15, you may already have this passage marked. It's one of the most famous parables in the Bible. Luke 15 is a preacher friend of mine encouraged me to go to preaching school. He said one time in a Bible class, if all I had in my Bible was Luke 15, I'd have enough to believe in the compassion and heart of God. Verse 17 is the key verse, at least in the parable, as it relates to the young man. Notice what it says when he came to himself. He said, I'll arise and go to my father. Question, if he had to come to himself, where was he before? He was obviously away from himself and out of his mind, just like Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 4 and verse 36, Nebuchadnezzar says, when I came back to myself, then I realized how things ought to work. And this younger son says, I'm going to go home. He views the father's house as a house that he can return to. I'll arise and I'll go to my father and he prepares a speech. I'll say, Father, I've sinned before heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Question, after all he's done, how can he go home? How can he possibly gird up his loins and go back to the father from which he basically wished him dead, snatched the inheritance out of his hand and went and just defamed the family name? There's only one answer to that question. The only way this young man can go home is because he knows the kind of father he's going to meet when he arrives. He knows his dad. 
Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says God is compassionate and long-suffering, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, and that he longs to forgive. The man knew this. Look at Luke 15. Look at the text. Notice verse 17. He knew his father was not only good to him and his older brother, but he says, how many of my father's workers have more than enough bread? His father was good even to his servants. Psalm 23 and verse 5 was true, not just for the boys, but even for the slaves in the house. Their cup overflowed because his father was a good man. Some people come to their senses and they view the father's house as one they can come home to. You've got to give the young man credit. He didn't just think about it. Verse 20 says he arose and went. Do you know how many prodigals get up every Sunday morning? Sunday's just like this one. And this is the one. They get dressed and they say, you know, they make plans. Saturday night, this is the one. They never get around to doing it. So many prodigals die in the far country because they don't know the father. I'm telling you, how you view the father's house, what you think about him changes everything. Credit this young man. He got up and he actually went home. God cries through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33 and verse 11. And he says, turn, turn ye and live. I have no pleasure in the death of the righteous. Come home. I want you here. And the young son believes that he can. The only way you can come home after an event like this, when the last thing you did was curse and disrespect your father, is if you believe he'll have you back. Micah 7, 18 and 19 says that God is long suffering and compassionate. He does not retain his anger forever. Listen, when you're sinning, God is not sitting there fuming, thinking of more things to be mad at you about. But he delights in mercy. He tramples our iniquities under his feet and casts our sins into the depths of the sea. And that's what this young man knew. I don't know if it was a long time for you or a short time, but do you remember when you were far away from God, when you weren't living like you know that you should have been living? And aren't you glad that you couldn't out his mercy? You couldn't behave so badly that he forever turned his back on you. Lamentation says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I'll hope in him. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Romans 5 and verse 20. His mercy is unending. Psalm 106 and verse 1. You can't out Maybe you obeyed the gospel. You grew up in the church, but there was a time when you just you just got out of duty. You weren't doing the things that you know that you should have been doing. And yet you realized if I go home, he'll have me. He'll let me come back into his house. He always leaves the porch light on. Hosea 14, 1 and 2, the prophet calls the people, come home, say the right things, offer the right sacrifices and do the right things because God will have you back. If one lie the devil tells people is, if one of his favorites is sin, it's not going to do you any damage. Live however you want. A cousin to that lie is if you ever ruin it, don't you ever go back. You're a hypocrite, a phony, an imposter. They'll mock you. It's like Scar tells young Simba. You remember Run away and don't you ever return again. Your name is mud here. And we believe that lie in our hearts. But the younger son knows better. And he says, my father's house is a house I'll return to. His speech is impressive. He doesn't blame anyone or anything. He just says, I've sinned before heaven in your sight. I'm the guilty one and I've come home. If you find yourself away from God, you say, I'm not being all that I should be. Realize that he will have you back. His house is a house to return to. He's standing on the porch. He hasn't changed the locks. He wants you back home in his house. And the younger son viewed the house that way. Here's number four. It's a house of unfairness for some. Verse 25, there's a change. There are two sons in the house, and this is the elder brother. The text says he hears the music and the dancing, and he's out in the field working. And he goes near to the house and asks one of the servants, hey, what's all this commotion about? And he's told about the festivities. 
Your brother's returned. Your father's killed the fattened calf. That would only be done for a great celebration. He's received him back alive, safe and sound. The older brother, verse 28, says he's angry and he won't go in. Listen, he had done everything right. At least he says as much. And his father's house, so far as he can tell, is one of unfairness. It's Asaph's struggle in Psalm 73 in verse 3. He says, I was envious when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They always get their way. Everything goes their way. I hate it here. His father comes out to talk to him in verse 28. He sits his father down. No, you listen to me. These many years, your translation may say I served you. He uses the word that says I have been your slave every day. I've never disobeyed your commandment. You never threw me a party that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours comes home and you throw him a party. You ignore the righteous and reward the unruly. And he says, I can't take it here. I don't know how it was growing up in your house. Maybe you had a family where there was one child that did everything wild and and rebellious and reckless. And you tried your best to behave and do what was right. And you hated it. You saw your parents continuously lavish second chances and grace upon a sibling that you just know you outperformed. And you say to yourself, it's just not fair. It's just not right. Every person who's ever done their best to live faithfully according to God's word. Maybe you grew up in the church and you have tried to conform your life to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, you've got nothing to be ashamed of. You've got nothing to hang your head about. If you don't have a long spiritual rap sheet of crimes against your creator, there's nothing to apologize for. But be warned, you will fight this tendency to be the elder brother throughout your life. And if you don't believe that, you don't know your own heart. You will look at other people that sin differently or at least be tempted to and to say, I don't really know if he repented of X or Y. I mean, is that conversion really genuine? I don't really know. Hey, they hadn't done what I've done. They've done things I would have never done. And you'll be tempted to look down on others. Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, on this parable, he talks about the fact that everybody in the world should view this as the parable of the two sons, not the one. He says there are two kinds of sinners in the world, those that sin like the younger brother and those that sin like the elder brother. The elder brother, if you look at what he says, he basically says, I'm well behaved. I've kept the laws. I've outperformed my siblings. In the end, he doesn't love his father. He merely wants to perform his father into his own debt. And he's just like the younger brother he despises. He says, you should give it to me. I've earned it because I've been good. Psychologists talk about the fact that sometimes siblings can get their whole identity based on outperforming the others. Everything they are and become is about the fact that they're not like this person or that person. And this older brother is in that same condition. There are two parties in Luke 15. There's the party for the younger son's return and there's the pity party thrown by the older brother. He says, you've never done anything like this for me. You've never rewarded my faithfulness and my goodness. You've missed it. I've done everything right and you haven't rewarded me. May elder brothers be warned that there are people that will not come home because they're worried about what we're going to say when they sit down at the table. And it might be self-perceived and maybe they're psyching themselves out and doing it to themselves. But they're just thinking to themselves, if I go back in that building, they'll say he's not sincere. She's just coming back again for a time. It won't be long before they're out. We need to remember it's not our house. What you need most from God is not his fairness, but his mercy. James 2 and verse 13 says the one that's shown no mercy will be judged without it. And mercy rejoices against judgment. Be faithful, live right. But remember, God is never in your debt. Doesn't matter how many church services you've attended, how many Bible passages you've committed to memory, how many good deeds you've done. He owes all of us nothing but death. And everything we receive from him is merely a sign of his marvelous grace. 
Romans 4, 4 and 5, he says to the one who works is reckoned according to debt. But ours is not that it's sheer grace. The elder brother needed the exact same thing that the younger brother received. And that was the mercy and grace of his father. And here's the fifth and final way that many view the father's house. And that is as a house of welcome. The younger brother comes home and he's got his speech prepared. He knows what he's going to say to his father. He's going to apologize. And he really doesn't even want to be a son again. He says, I'll just be a servant. He's fallen a long way. He starts out with give me. He ends with just make me. Just receive me back as a servant and I'll do that. His father sees him in verse 20 from a far way off, runs to him, has compassion, embraces him, kisses on his neck. He's overwhelmed. He won't have him back as a slave, but only as he won't have him back as a slave, but only as a son. The language is similar to what's said about Joseph. You remember Genesis 41 and verse 42 when he is ascended to second in command in Egypt. He gets a new robe and a gold chain and he's promoted to a place of prominence. That's this younger son. The father says, you're welcomed home. Hold your hand in Luke 15. Go to Genesis 33, because what the father does here is exactly what the elder brother should have done, but didn't do. You remember Jacob and Esau. Jacob literally stole Esau's inheritance. And there's been several years that go by. And there's this rift between the brothers, so much so Jacob's terrified, scared for his life, that when Esau sees him, he'll kill him. That's the last thing his brother said. But in Genesis 33, 4 and 5, notice the response and the way Moses describes this. And Jesus just picks these words up to say, elder brothers, this should have been you. When Esau saw his brother, what does he do? He runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, asks about his family. In verse 5, the father performed the role that the, younger, the elder brother should have. He wants both of his children home and in his house. It's not just the elder brother, though. Verse 28 says of Luke 15, he went out to the elder brother, too. He went out to both sons and his message to both is the same. Would you come to dinner? Come to the party. Come home. The father's house is a house of welcome. This elder brother is having this spiritual hissy fit and he's saying, I've done everything right. I've served you. You've never done anything good for me. And the father wants him to reason. Jesus wants us to reason just like God tried to get Jonah to reason. Would you rejoice if a man lost his sheep and found it? They said yes. Would you rejoice if a woman lost a coin and found it? Of course they would say yes. Now, what if a man found a son? Could you imagine a set of parents having two children and telling them you must never play by the streets? We live in a dangerous area with a lot of traffic and one of the children repeatedly disobeys and finally is struck by a car, injured within an inch of their life. It costs the family everything to save her life. Everything. They move into a smaller apartment, sell the house, The doctors say the surgery and the response to it is touch and go. Finally, she pulls through upon her return home. The family throws this great party. Can you imagine a son, a little brother in the room saying, I refuse to go out to the party. I never played in the street. You never gave me a party. She doesn't deserve it. To ask is to answer. You know you wouldn't. And Jesus is saying, don't do that now. God's house is a house of welcome. He says, I want everybody here. There's a church tradition. Maybe you've seen this before. Maybe you haven't. But there is a church tradition where church doors are painted red. And the reason for it's been going on for centuries, all the way back in the church history. The reason why is because the red door symbolize the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's to say all throughout the week, Monday through Saturday, we never measure up. But when we come in through those red doors, everybody's on the level playing field. Everybody has come through those doors on the same merit. It's on the merit of not ourselves on the merit of Jesus Christ. Christianity is the only philosophy and worldview in the world where your identity is not achieved, it's received. 
Every other worldview says if you measure up to your parents. The Eastern worldview says if you can find your inner self, if you just do the right things, then you're welcome. Christianity says there's work to be done, but you can't do it. Somebody's performed on your behalf and you get to come in. Kenneth led us in some beautiful songs, but especially the one before the Lord's Supper. We gather around this table and all of us looks each other in the face and we say the same thing. We've been invited to a dinner that we don't deserve to attend. We've wasted our inheritance with reckless living. And yet there's a seat reserved with our name on it. Listen, our church doors don't have to be red, but our hearts must. He's washed us from our sins in his own blood. Revelation one and verse five. And the father's house must be viewed this way. It's a house of welcome. Nobody's done so much and gone so far that he won't have them back. He's still on the porch looking out at the world and saying, I really want you to come. I really want you to come home. You can't earn this identity, but I'll freely bestow it on you. Jesus was an amazing storyteller. He doesn't tell us how it ends. He just drops the mic and walks off and basically says to the scribes and Pharisees, you write your own conclusion. Will you come to dinner? After all, that's the point of the parable. Don't. But there's one more aspect to this. And it is that Jesus is the true elder brother. He is the one who did every single thing right, who never transgressed God's commandment. And when we went out into the far country, we made his work harder and more difficult. But to our amazement and surprise, when we come home, he went the father stride for stride and step for step meets us out into the field. He not only attends our party, but he throws it for us at the cost of his own inheritance. And when we finally sit down at the table, he's wearing an apron and he's saying, what would you like to eat? And what would you like to drink? I did everything right and I was treated as if I did everything wrong so that you who have done everything wrong can stand before God as if you did everything right, just like me. The father's house is a house of welcome. It's a house we can return to. It's a house where God says, I have you home. How you view God is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about me. And Jesus says a certain man had two sons, but God would have many more. Kenneth's going to lead us in a song to encourage us. If you need to come home, whether that's you are created in the image of God, you've never obeyed his gospel. You can do what our young people did throughout this weekend. Confess your faith in Jesus. If you've been studying the New Testament, turn from sin and be immersed in water to have your sins forgiven. And if you've obeyed the gospel and it's been a while since you've lived in step with what you know is right, you can arise and go to your father and you won't find an angry father who wants to push you further away. You'll find a loving father who longs to embrace you, kiss you, welcome you home and an assembly of elder brothers and sisters who want to do the same. If this is your invitation, come as together we stand and sing.